This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Media Matters, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Daily Show, and On the Media with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. It's reached a new low in terms of stories related to the economy on CNN. CNN is bringing on psychics to tell us what the economy will be like. You curious about this, Lewis? Very. Take a listen to this. Let's see about what's going to happen. USA, USA. Frank Andrews uses tarot cards. Karen Thorne, a crystal ball. When I look at the crystal ball, I get symbols. And Serena Stanley, a money pot. It brings anyone who holds it prosperity. Three tools they say bring comfort and clarity to their clients during this scary time for the global economy. As the experts debate and uncertainty remains, there's only one profession that claims to be able to predict into the future. You can find them all over New York City. Yeah. Psychics. Our first stop, Karen Thorne. Okay. He has one of the best charts. So you know what, we, and we don't even need to hear Fed Chairman ben- what they say. The point is CNN is bringing on psychics to talk about the economy. And you know what? I started saying to myself, this is absurd. This really is ridiculous. And But then I said, you know what? Does this mean the situation is so confusing with the economy that we can't find any real economics experts? Or does it mean that CNN is just making some embarrassing programming decisions? What do you, which do you think it is, Lewis? Uh, I mean, I'd like to think that they are, they took up this story because they think that people are actually going to psychics to try and get information or, I don't know, whatever, details about the economy that they can't figure out themselves. Yeah, see, I didn't even consider the fact that CNN was running this because they legitimately thought people are going to psychics. I thought it was either... either it was just filler? I thought it was either filler or they just, they're just don't know what they're doing. But then I started thinking, the pundits we see every day on 24-hour cable channels are really no more qualified to predict the future of the economy than the psychics. In other words, they're both completely unqualified. I mean, what special knowledge does Bill Crystal have or Pat Buchanan? that would allow them to accurately predict what the economy is going to do in the future. Something that really I don't think anyone can do. Right. Maybe psychics are just as qualified as Pat Buchanan, for example. You make a good point. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. Paul Krugman coming out with an article talking about how uh, this cult uh, is driving Washington crazy. No, he's not talking about the cult of the right wing. It's the cult of centrism. I was like, oh, thank God, finally somebody said it, right? 
and I love these co- quotes that he's got. He says, you have to ask, what would it take for these news organizations, this is the part I love, and pundits to actually break with the convention that both sides are equally at fault? Look, this is the thing I talk about all the time. If they were sports reporters, they'd all be fired because the Steelers and the Cowboys would play. Steelers win 42-10, which is, of course, normally what would happen. Uh, and then in... Uh, if it's CNN and it's a lot of these uh, uh, pundits and major media organizations, they'd be like, well, Pittsburgh says they won, Dallas says they won. No, somebody won. The score was 42-10. You can't look at the Republicans saying, hey, even though President Obama and Harry Reid is giving us 100% of what we wanted earlier, they're giving us $2.7 trillion in cuts and asking for no revenue increase in return. Well, we're going to say now positions have shifted and we're going to call it even again. That is not even. In fact, you should be deriding the president and the Democrats for losing so badly, okay? And that's subjective. To say that they're not losing is weird. To say that you've got to split the difference again every time that the Republicans move the goalposts, well, that's a dereliction of duty if you're an actual journalist. Krugman continues, the both sides are at fault people have to know better. If they refuse to say it, it's out of some combination of fear and ego of being unwilling to sacrifice their treasured pose of being above the fray. That's 100% right. And one other point he makes that's uh, very good is he says, look, then there's no price for extremism. Because the more extreme you are, you don't get called out on it. It only helps you because you keep moving the center, keep moving the center. No matter how far you go out to the right, or theoretically the left, although no one goes there, no matter how far out you go, the mainstream media will immediately call a new center and go, well, the Republicans say this and the Democrats say that, so the answer must be in the center. The center of what? I've been saying this for so long. They've moved the political center in Washington, not in the country. In Washington, so far to the right, and yet still the mainstream media is like, I don't know, the Democrats say this, Pittsburgh says this, the Cowboys say that, I'm going to call it in the middle. All right, I love that Krugman uh, pointed that out. Ariana Huffington also saying, look, this debt ceiling stuff, (laughs) she says, calls a quote, the myth of grand bargains and win-win unicorns. This is what I was saying yesterday. Where's the win-win? Where's our win? There's no wins. As I pointed out yesterday on the show, there's two options. One is 100% defeat. The other one is worse. The 100% defeat is the one I just outlined. The second one is the so-called grand bargain where we cut the spending and we cut taxes for the rich and we cut entitlements. Now, we increase taxes, but don't worry. That's mainly on you, on the middle class and the poor. So, how you like them apples, right? And it's look, it's nice to see other people writing about it, because with everybody else constantly doing what Krugman's talking about, you begin to think, am I the one who took the crazy pill? <laughs> Some executives would think so. <laughs> so, anyway, it's great to see, like, hey, yes, of course, I'm not seeing it wrong. It's 100% to nothing. I know, she knows that I'm not fond of asking. Years ago, a Canadian professor of popular culture rocked the world with his observation that the medium 
is the message. Marshall McLuhan's books were on every U.S. college campus, not just in classrooms, but on the quads and in the dorms. McLuhan's two books, Understanding Media and The Gutenberg Galaxy, taught the 60s generation how to move into the new worlds of TV, radio, and telephone that transformed American life at the middle of the 20th century. But as brilliant as he was, the best quote belongs to Learned Han, a legendary American judge who, in a speech in 1942, spoke about media in a way that has rarely been bettered. Judge Han said, The hand that rules the press, the radio, the screen, and the far-spread magazine rules the country. Imagine that, coming from a federal judge. Now look at the burgeoning scandal bubbling in Britain, where media bought off cops, hacked into the personal communications of thousands of people, from princes to proletarians, and intimidated politicians from the pubs to parliament. The media, by that I mean a privately owned company, unelected and unaccountable to anyone but company bosses, decided who would get elected to what, and what they would do once they got in power. And of course, they pressured politicians to do their bidding, for their interest outweighed the public interest. And their interest was, and is, power and profit. To gain both, they committed thousands of crimes, invaded public and personal privacy, corrupted cops and politicians, and plunged into secrecy to sell papers and to twist politics to their ends. There will be inquiries on several continents. Some politicians will grandstand, and more papers will be sold. But in the end, what will change of a media culture that serves the interests of its owners and not the people? From death row, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. As you probably don't know, Fox News has replaced Glenn Beck's show with an oddball panel of five contributors. It's kind of like ABC's The View meets Lord of the Flies. Take a listen. Up on the hill. Fear-mongering. I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, President Bush never fear-mongered like this. I mean, making, <laughs> making threats. Well, he didn't threaten $2. not $2. to $2.6 trillion pay. in there. Come on. He didn't threaten not to pay Social Security. Token Democrat Bob Beckel was having none of it. A conversation about WMDs in Iraq ensued, prompting Fox Business host Eric Bowling to let out this little gem. Well, you know, they what, know whether they did or didn't, was America was certainly safe between 2000 and 2008. I don't remember any terrorist attacks on American soil during that period of time. Except for, you know, that one that happened in 2001 in the month of September. Every so often a news anchor ends up becoming the story. Dan Rather being roughed up on the floor of the 68 Democratic Convention. Marv Albert having a sex scandal. Barbara Walters causing the destruction of the Hindenburg. Why? Why, Barbara? Why do you kill? And lately watching CNN, I've noticed something newsworthy may be brewing there as well. One group calculated how much it would cost to go to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. More than $43,000, and that's for only one year. Tuition is actually the biggest chunk. Just to send your kid off to become a wizard, it's going to price you right out of the ballpark, I'd say. Okay, I say it costs zero because it doesn't exist. There 
There you go. <laughs> I could have done the calculations for you. <laughs> right at the top. It is I interesting, know, well, though. I didn't... <laughs> you see that? His half-hearted last-minute effort to feign that he cares at all about what that woman was talking That's not just casual anchor banter, my friends. That is a call for help. As we explore in our new segment, CNN anchor Don Lemon appears not to care for CNN. <laughs> CNN, I'm concerned. It appears your anchor Don Lemon may not care very much for the antics of your network, CNN. <laughs> Behold. Even parts of Canada are sinfully hot. A little warmer up here than where I'm used to, but uh, hell. All right, so there's nothing to joke about this. It is dangerous, and as I said, nothing to joke. He is the Cato to my Green Hornet, the Robin to my Batman, the Dino Girl to my Electro Woman. I have no idea who any of these people are except for Batman. That may be the nicest way I've ever heard anyone say, who writes this <laughs> But the hostage situation that appears to be Don Lemon's, Don Lemon's tenure at CNN reached this, what do you say, Zenith or Nader here? Uh, uh, I'm going to say both. One, two, three. Oh, I got to tell you, I, I like Don Lemon a lot, but he's going to have to work hard to top that. CNN Newsroom begins right now with Don Lemon. Good morning, Don. Good morning. I don't think I'm going to have to work that hard. What the heck was that? What do you mean, what the heck was that? That was Ali Belshi's doppelganger, the common egg, being knocked into a glass of water from a toilet paper tube. What is it, your first day in news, Lemon? See, it turns out reporter Don Lemon prefers reporting. Such stories as the uprising in Syria, breach of trust in British journalism, or even some simple local interest stories. Emily Good said she recorded that video in her front yard because she was concerned uh, about racial profiling and police harassment. Do you believe that this is a systematic problem with Rochester police? See, that's Lemon's country comfort zone. But don't worry. I'm sure CNN producers are hard at work trying to fit Don Lemon into their format. It's something catchy like, Don Lemon's zesty news bowl. <laughs> I got one. How about... Lemon harangue. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain, sir. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. So this is, this is going to show you how uh, uh, local news here in Los Angeles, so people go, well, why can this still be happening? Well, because the media, the fourth estate, 
is uh, populated by corporate hacks and, and, and their tools, right? Their mm -hmm. corporate mouthpieces. And they never want to tell you what's really happening. They'd rather make you think it's poor people also, that are making off like bandits yes. and unions and teachers that are screwing you. Mm -hmm. Not really what happened. So, what do you want? And, and also, uh, media uh, deregulation, uh, them being uh, well, owned by fewer and fewer people. Bill Clinton, we have to thank for that, yeah. the media deregulation. He, right. he becomes a worse president as each it, day passes. Yes, yeah. yes. Turning out to be a bad president. Mm. So, um, so here's ABC7 local. Now here's so. Why aren't people rising up in the streets? Why don't we see riots? Because we don't have real media here. It's official. The debt ceiling crisis is over for now. Without fanfare, President Obama signed the compromise bill into law less than an hour after the Senate approved it. The measure raises the debt ceiling by more than $2 trillion and avoids default, allowing the government to pay its bills. But neither the president nor congressional leaders are celebrating. A special congressional commission has less than four months to come up with revenue increases and another $1.5 trillion in spending cuts, and no one knows where those cuts will come from. Okay, so that was how they covered it that day. They spent about 30 seconds on that story. And you're like, okay, I kind of understood it. I, I, don't, I don't know what they're doing. They're, they're probably busy covering the Middle East or something else, you know, the Arab Spring or the riots in, in England. There must be something there else, must be something. There must be a good reason why they didn't go more into depth. Well, let's see. Let's see what that let's might see. be. Let's see. They didn't have time to go more into depth to tell you that what's really happening is that the plutocracy that's running our country now, which is headed by Wall Street and the banks, which own the government, is screwing you. They screwed up. They made trillions, and you're going to pay the bill. That's what this is about. They don't say that because the corporation... No, it's over. President no, Obama, Obama signed, signed it. it. It's all over. So, but, and they didn't go into that detail. Didn't, yeah. They didn't tell you what that means to you. But here's the stories they did have time for. The son of Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neal is back in jail tonight. Plus, who has the best body in Hollywood? Here's a hint. It's good news for mature women. Okay, so that was right after the debt story. Those were the two stories they had to cut to. You're, you, you think I'm kidding? So they come back, they do those stories. Here's the next story ABC7 had time for. Ready? Are you good at making people laugh? Well, maybe you should be a professional clown. Clowning is one of the oldest art forms known to man. It dates back to 13 BC. <laughs> These amateur clowns are trying out for the greatest show on earth, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus. Okay, that story, uh, they spent exactly the same amount of time as the debt ceiling story and the clown college. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, well, Jimmy, that's local news. I mean, uh, who turns on local news? Okay, maybe Nightline, that same night. Here's the promo for 11. Coming up on Nightline, chilling home video from the couple who kidnapped J.C. Dugard. What was law enforcement doing while they stalked other little girls? Plus, the gluten-free diet, is it healthful or a fad? What doctors have to say? So they got it covered. Nightline, good thing. Good thing we still have Nightline on. Good thing we wait a half hour to put on Jimmy Kimmel with the fluff. So this is what the volume knobs for. I listen to dance music. Dance music. Okay, so look, I'm 17 years old. And you're the last best thing I got going But then the special secret sickness starts to eat through you What am I supposed to do? No way of knowing, so I follow you down your twisting alleyways Find a few cul-de-sacs of my own 
There's only one place this road ever ends up And I don't wanna die alone Let me down, let me down, let me down gently When the police come to get me, I'm listening to dance we all know the internet is a moving target, and so our concerns about it can yo-yo. The fact that we can now choose among myriad information streams allows us to cherry-pick our media diets so we encounter only news that reinforces our worldview. Back in 2004, University of Chicago professor Cass Sunstein, who now works for the Obama administration, said that we should be afraid, very afraid. The greatest danger of the echo chambers is unjustified extremism. So it's a well-known fact that if you get a group of people who tend to think something, after they talk to each other, they end up thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before. And the danger of that is you can make a situation where people demonize those who disagree with them. And that's an ongoing threat to our democracy. That gave me the willies until 2009 when I spoke to Lee Rainey of the Pew Internet and American Life Project. He conducted a study of people's behavior on the Internet during the 2004 presidential campaign. One of the surprising things we found in that survey was that those who are the most technologically adept and those who are the most engaged with information actually are not in the echo chamber pattern. They are actually seeking out and finding out more arguments opposed to their views than those who are less technologically adept and less interested in political information. The most technologically adept people are you know, scanning every horizon they can and they can't help but bump into stuff that doesn't agree with them. So I stopped being afraid. Until last month, when I spoke to Eli Pariser, author of The Filter Bubble. He said that Google, which once ranked search results solely on popularity, now personalizes results according to our online clicking behavior. In fact, there's a whole industry based on gathering information so that websites and advertisers can serve us better. One of the underlying dynamics here is that a lot of what this personalization trend is about is making the web a more passive experience, delivering information to you rather than you having to seek it out. Steve Jobs famously said, you have to have your brain on, you have to be leaning forward to use your computer. And that was sort of what was good about the internet. It was an interactive medium. What these companies are trying to do is make it easier and easier just to sit back and have the information passively come to you. And it would be sad if it went in that direction, because when you do get yourself on the hunt for information that's exciting and interesting and different, you learn a lot. Can you give me an example from your own research of how the same search might yield different results for different people. Earlier this year, I asked a number of friends to Google Obama and see what came up. Sure enough, you know, one person got the top link from the New York Times about Obama. The other person got the top link from Fox News. And there did seem to be a partisan tilt in the information that they were getting based on apparently what they had been clicking on before. You know, neither of them were even aware that their search results differed from each other at all. I mean, you can't see how much your experience of the web is redirecting you toward things that you're going to find palatable or you're going to already agree with. One thing that you mentioned to us is that as a founder of MoveOn, you wanted to cultivate online a number of Facebook friends who were clearly conservative. And you did. You friended conservatives, but slowly but surely, Facebook caused them to fade away. One morning I logged on to Facebook and they just weren't there. Facebook was 
looking at who I was engaging with, what I was clicking on, watching everything I was doing on the site. And it was editing my newsfeed to edit them out. It was saying, you say that you're interested in these people, but actually, we know that you know you are interacting more with people who are like you. And so we're going to show you more of their stuff, and we're going to let these people fade away. Eli Pariser, author of The Filter Bubble. Cho Turo, author of the forthcoming The Daily You, How the New Advertising Industry is Defining Your Worth and Your World, from Yale University Press, says we're living in a whole new internet ecosystem. That is looking at us, collecting data, analyzing it, predicting what we do, and then targeting us with ads, discounts, and eventually news and information. And while it's not going to totally take over our lives, it will certainly put us in buckets, I call them reputation silos, as we move forward that may be problematic for society. Expand on the problematic aspect. Let's say you have a family with kids, and the kids go online and they talk about what they do, and advertisers figure, God, this kid is heavy. Maybe he likes fast food. So all of a sudden, the son in the family starts getting fast food discounts. The daughter starts getting gym ads that talk about losing weight. The husband begins to be put into buckets that reflect probabilities about income, and all of a sudden sees more used car ads and old car ads. We will get TV commercials and even suggestions about what to watch based upon the buckets that we're put in. And we don't even know how we're being described. We don't even know where those data are coming from. And yet they will shape the kinds of things we see in our lives. Well, I won't say I'm not worried about the effects of personalization. I think in many ways we're still at a very early stage with it. Jacob Weisberg, editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. But this is a version, Brooke, of a concern that I've heard since the very beginnings of the internet. My complaint about Eli Pariser's type of thinking is it's totally unempirical. And you tried to reproduce his results. What happened? Well, he starts his whole book very elaborately with this anecdote about Google, and he says two friends of his searched for BP, British Petroleum, during the oil spill. And one of them got news about the oil spill, and the other one got investment results about BP. And I said, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, I just don't have any experience of people getting search results that vary that much. So I just set up a very simple experiment. I wouldn't make any claim for it, except that it's a better experiment than he did. And he wrote a whole book about it. And I asked, you know, some people, I used Twitter, and I said, can I have some volunteers, people with different politics, different parts of the country, to just do the same searches? And let's take some terms that are obviously political. Obamacare, and then just the names of, you know, John Boehner, Barney Frank. I had five or six people do this, and they all got essentially the same results. There were only minute differences, and the differences were insignificant. The insurance consultant from Dubuque got Wikipedia entries for the first two congressmen ahead of the official websites, while the others got the official websites first. Right. And then with Boehner, this was an interesting test. There was a kind of Wikipedia-type site, very hostile to Boehner, and everybody got that in the same place whether you're right-wing, whether you're left-wing, whether you're in Dubuque, whether you're in New York City. So I just don't believe what he says about Google, and I think that casts into doubt the larger way he raises the issue, not about whether this is something that could happen, but about whether it is happening. But you yourself list a whole slew of efforts to create personalized news services, whether it's coming from the New York Times or the Washington Post or uh, these personalized magazines for tablets that are based on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. These are all efforts to anticipate what news we are interested in and what news in which we have no interest. But this is the interesting question. How personalized 
should personalized news be? Do you just want to get news about sailing and greyhound racing? No, even if you're interested in those subjects, you want them as a supplement, maybe an oversampled supplement, to what actually happened yesterday in the world. In a rebuke to Pariser in your column, you wrote, Why assume that when people have more options, they will choose to live in an echo chamber? I think past behavior allows us to assume that to a large extent. Homophily, the tendency of birds of a feather to flock together, is wired in. It's never been hard to live in an echo chamber. In fact, I think in many ways it's harder now and was easier before. People didn't used to have a big range of options about information sources. Maybe they had a local newspaper, they had the network news, there were three networks. You could make an argument that most of the country lived in a kind of bubble with a limited range of opinion in the days before the Internet brought us this huge variety. But I just try to look at it in terms of my own experience as a starting point and the experience of people I know. On Twitter, you follow people you're interested in, and the people are a proxy for the subjects. So you think someone is good either in your field or another field you care about or some subject that's happening. You start to get this range of sources you've never heard from before. And I find that by using Twitter to personalize the news, I have hugely broadened my range of voices, of ideas. Now, I'm not saying that's absolutely a common experience either. I'm just arguing against the automatic assumption that, oh, because there's some kind of personalization happening, what the personalization is going to do is narrow us. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jess Levin. Fox News continues to prove they will use anything to bash President Obama and American progressives. But we cannot allow in any way uh, this sort of uh, behavior to be uh, excused by the, by the far left. And let's face it, I mean, the left is continually trying to find excuses for violent criminal behavior. We're seeing that uh, today in the United Kingdom. We've seen it across Europe. Uh, we're even seeing it in the United States as well, where the left has justified acts of, of sheer anarchy in the past. If you think the death of 30 American soldiers, including 22 Navy SEALs, would be a topic too sacred to politicize, you would be wrong. Had he given advice about what to do with the market, he would have exercised leadership. Instead, he segued into something we all agree on, which is remorse and sorrow over the loss of the the SEALs uh, in Afghanistan. uh, That was a very clever way of trying to get the economy off the front page. Once we encounter an information environment like the Internet, which is driven by our choices rather than driven by the constraints of a professional editor, I think we have to take very seriously the notion that we might be giving ourselves only what we want to hear. That's Ethan Zuckerman, senior researcher at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, who suggests that there may be something to fear, not necessarily in our technology, but in ourselves. Our online social circles, the wide collection of loose ties we assemble on Facebook and Twitter, can put us in the path of new ideas, but only if we want them. Pariser says that Facebook stopped sending him news from the conservatives he friended because he didn't interact with them. So is Facebook to blame 
or Pariser? The question is agency. Did you choose to do this? Do you have control over it? Or is it happening to you? Ethan Zuckerman. I think it's worthwhile to be a careful critic of these algorithms, but I think the personalization that we all do every day by choosing what information we look for, choosing who we talk to and who we interact with is a much more powerful force in limiting our exposure to different forms of information. Everybody will say they're going to sign up for this kind of varied diet, just as everybody says their musical tastes are quite varied and unpredictable. And yet, when we look at what they actually do, there's a much narrower range there. Clay Shirky is a consultant, educator, and author of Cognitive Surplus, Creativity and Generosity in a Connected Age. Some of it may be because people's interests are in a narrower range. Some of it may be because people imagine that they have more time to explore the world than they actually do, right? You know, there's a handful of coast-hugging eggheads who have all the time in the world to just experience the media landscape in its full, crazy, and chaotic glory. And we think everybody ought to do like that. But, of course, everybody has a job, and most people's jobs don't involve sitting around playing around with the web to see what it's doing today. Right now, there are plenty of people at work on the problem of engineering encounters with unexpected information, of engendering what netheads call serendipity. For his part, Shirky visits group aggregation sites like Three Quarks Daily and Crooked Timber, sites with more than one editor. And that gives me a more varied media diet than essentially using my own filters against the web would do. But for the reasons he just stated, the group that seeks the ideas of people who think differently from themselves will always be small. This is, I think, the great weakness in the work being done on these kind of serendipity options, is to assume that everybody somehow deep down wants to be surprised or challenged. In fact, he says that the new media are exposing us to unwelcome information far more than back when we were limited to cable in the daily paper. The conservative and liberal blogospheres link to each other all the time, and it's degrading public discourse. Constant exposure to the idea that people disagree with you actually enrages people. So the polarization, I think, doesn't come from us cutting ourselves off from people who disagree with us, but rather from the irritation of constant exposure to the idea that there are people who disagree with us and that they are also out speaking in public, just as we are. I think that the threat of polarization is there, but I think that Sunstein's diagnosis of the reasons it happened were wrong. So, in a way, the cure he proposed might make the disease worse. The cure meaning greater exposure to other people's views. Exactly right. (laughs) Exactly right. That's very dark, Clay. You know, look, I'm a Madisonian. I don't think that you ever get rid of factionalism. I don't think that what we want is for each individual to become more moderate. I think what we want is for the democratic system to produce the kind of fights that lead to moderate outcomes, even if all of the participants are partisan. Hmm. Two years ago, Lee Rainey at Pew's Internet and American Life Project soothed me with data. I think I need to call him again. More people nowadays say they get political news and information from sources that share their point of view than were telling us that a couple of years ago. Oh, no. At the same time, we see among the heaviest Internet users, the people who presumably would have the most sophisticated filtering tools and the inclination to go into that echo chamber if they felt like it, those people are getting more information from more sources and a greater diversity of points of view than they have before. So it's a mixed picture. How many of those latter people are there? 
there are fewer of them than there used to be. We definitely know that there are fewer people now on any given day who get any kind of news. About a decade ago, it was about a tenth of the population. Now it's about a fifth of the population who say on any given day, I didn't get news from any source. Is the Internet creating a situation that enables us to be and results in us being more intellectually isolated? Possibly. Brooke, I had you in mind when I drafted this battery of questions that we <laughs> ran in the post-election survey we did in 2010, and it shows you what a mixed bag this situation is. So I'm just going to read you a bunch of questions and a bunch of data to show you how confused and fun this world is for us to be studying. <laughs> Would you say that the Internet makes it easier to connect with others who share your political views or had no impact? 54% said, it's easier for me now to find people who share my point of view, and 42% said it didn't make any impact. So then we asked them, which of the following statements comes closest to your point of view? The Internet increases the influence of those with extreme political views, or the Internet reduces the influence of those with extreme views by giving ordinary citizens a chance to be heard. 55% said it increases the influence of extreme views, 30% said it reduces the influence of extreme views, and the rest said they didn't really know. So, again, people are worried about the echo chamber, particularly if it drives up the power of extreme voices. But then we ask people, do you think that the Internet exposes people to a wider range of political views than they can get in the traditional news media? 61% said it increases the range of views. So that flies against the notion that an echo chamber is there because the Internet is providing a lot more people the opportunity to expose themselves to points of view that they wouldn't get from traditional media. The final question we ask, again, sort of our Brooke battery here. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about the political information you find online, would you say it's usually easy or difficult for you to tell what is true from what is not true? 56 said it is difficult. 33% said it's easy. So this is just a more challenging information environment that, yes, is pushing more people towards people who are like them or towards points of view that are similar to theirs, and yet they can celebrate the fact that they are aware of more things or they think their fellow citizens are aware of more things because the Internet just has allowed this proliferation of voices and niches to come into being. Do you feel less sanguine about this echo chamber business now than you did, say, five years ago? Yeah, there are more structures in place that potentially push people into echo chambers, but I don't think we fully understand yet the pathways of information in order to be able to say definitively, this is happening, it's bad, or this is happening in certain ways that aren't necessarily so bad. So it's a pretty mixed picture, and we haven't yet reached the end of the road with it. I'm counting on you, Lee. Brooke, there are so many more Brooke batteries for us to, to <laughs> ask that I have confidence that we'll keep talking about this as long as your show is on and I keep getting funding. <laughs> Lee Rainey, thank you very much. Thanks, Brooke. Ultimately, as Ethan Zuckerman observed, it comes down to choice. We choose echo chambers. In fact, we're wired to. But with conscious effort regularly applied, we can defeat that impulse by adding new circuits and connections to the standard array. The new technology makes it so easy and so hard.
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Finally, somebody else in Washington, specifically Senator John Kerry from Massachusetts, is saying what I've been saying for years. Stop giving equal time to every absurd notion. Stop putting any supposition, any theory, any suggestion up as if it is just as valid as any other. And John Kerry was on, uh, where was it? This was on, uh, he was on, I believe this was with David Gregory. And he actually said, we don't need to do that. Let's take a look at what John Kerry had to say, Lewis. Senator, I want There's to ask no you question about, about it. Uh, another piece of this, which is before we even get, and I'm a, a, an infrastructure bank is a no-brainer on some... Uh, on a you know what? Why, where can we get this so everybody can see it? I'm not too sure. Maybe we'll just have to go with the audio of this. Yeah, but we there. need to do it you, tomorrow. We need to true. get it done right away. But you mentioned right. that there are only $25 billion or so or $22 billion in cuts in the debt plan next year. But what wasn't in the debt plan was any talk of unemployment insurance or payroll uh, or the payroll tax cut. And if those right. expire, that sucks $170 billion or so out of the economy in 2012. What are the prospects for those two policies to get extended through 2012 this year in Congress? We have to change the minds of those people in the House of Representatives who have appropriately focused on the deficit and debt, but who have completely inappropriately left out any kind of plans whatsoever for how you create jobs and grow America. I mean, we literally, I mean, everybody's talked about it. Yes, the Congress was taken hostage, the country, the economy was taken hostage. You had people there who were literally ready to cut the baby in half. I mean, I've heard a lot of criticism of the president. Frankly, the president had no choice here. Congress had no choice here. We did the same thing the president had to do, which is save America from a default, because a default would have been far more disastrous. And what we had was a group of people who are completely uh, unaware or didn't care about the consequences of their actions. They were actually arguing for a default, which would have been even more catastrophic with respect to what's happening in Europe and what's happening here at home now. So we have to break that. And I have to tell you, I say this to you politely, the media in America has a bigger responsibility than it's exercising today. The media has got to begin to not give equal time or equal balance to an absolutely absurd notion just because somebody asserts it. That is absolutely brilliant. I could not have said it better myself, and I have been saying it, in fact, for years. And you know what? The, uh, the fact that whenever the right comes out with a proposal or a position that is even further to the right of what we've been talking about, the media says, well, here's the position on the left, and here's the position on the right, and here's the middle. And of course, as the positions on the right get more and more extreme, the middle goes further and further to the right. Mm -hmm. So what's the alternative to this? Well, Bill Maher mentioned it the other night. Maybe 
somebody comes out and puts out absurdly left positions, which then would, in theory, bring the middle back to the left. But you can't count on the on the media to give equal time to those notions. Absolutely. So uh, what do you do? You know, here's the thing. The problem that will come up is that Republicans, I know it, will be very good at instead of allowing the far left proposals to swing the middle back over to the left, what will happen is that Republicans will be very, very good at making Americans think that those extreme left positions are actually... Are the positions of all people on the left. Exactly. And it will backfire. I know it will backfire, which is why I, I don't actually think that it's a good idea. Bill Maher said, in half-joking, maybe it's a good idea. I worry that that won't work. And you know what? The media is completely intimidated. The media, if they were not intimidated by being afraid of being called lefties, which, as we know, they are all the time, even though they're actually on the right, for the most part, and if not on the right politically, they're certainly corporatist. It's a corporate point of view. You wouldn't be getting reporting, like, for example, on the one hand, there's those who believe climate change is affected by man's actions on Earth, and on the other hand, there's those who think it has nothing to do with man's actions. When you have an overwhelming majority of scientists over 85% in some cases, over 95% in some cases, depending on what groups you look at, that say, you know what, the evidence points to the fact that yes, man's actions on Earth have affected climate change. You're telling me the media is reporting things that way and they're not intimidated already? Come on. So you're saying the right has a, a stranglehold on, on all corporate media? No question about it. No question about it. And even though you will get more liberal products in the media, when you look at corporate media, you still have a, you, you have a lot of fear about being branded as being on the left. There seems to be a lot less fear about being branded as being on the right than about being on the left. Right. No question about it at all. So can you change anything, or do you have to hope that more people tune into the David Pakman show? I think independent media that is not funded by corporations is going to be the wave, the wave of the future. And increasingly, with increased access to the Internet, the ability to create new channels and new delivery platforms, not having to rely necessarily on AM radio or on cable TV, is going to open up the playing field it already has. The question is, how far can it go? And how long will it take? And how long will it take? Will it be too late? I, I fear it will take a very long time. I don't know. Hopefully it won't. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Rush Limbaugh has been getting some complaints as of late. I'm wondering if maybe these emails are coming from actual supporters disguised as critics. Because my email box gets flooded every time I make an assertion. You're lying about it, just like you lie about everything. You're just making it up. They're right, you know. Just this past week, Limbaugh lied about the debt ceiling. The public does not want compromise. That is the biggest misnomer. Um, a majority of Americans, I don't think it's any question about it now, once Obama defeated. Global warming? Of course, we know that this whole thing is fraudulent, and uh, it, it was from the get-go. Anybody with, uh, with, with half a brain knew it was fraudulent from the get-go. And taxes. And now we're up to 48% of the American people who have no skin in the game, not paying taxes. Interesting news. Uh, here it is. 
I am out at MSNBC. Now, whose decision was this? Well, it was both of our decisions. I will explain, okay? In turn, not at the same time. So uh, when I first came into MSNBC, they told me, hey, listen, you know, basically the main thing you gotta do is get good ratings. So I was like, okay, that's pretty clear. Uh, and uh, by the time that I had left, I had very good ratings, as I'm about to show you in a little bit. But uh, I was called in a couple of weeks ago and told that I will not get the six o'clock shot. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. I said, okay, well, why, right? Well, they said, uh, you had really good ratings, you did everything that we asked you to do, but we went in a different direction. But we want you to stay, which is nice of them. And they said, we want you to have a different role, and uh, they offered, honestly, a lot of money for that different role. I said no. Okay, now I'm gonna tell you why I said no, and why I think they didn't wanna go for six o'clock. So here's the interesting story. After I was told that, hey, listen, you mainly it's the ratings, right? One of the producers at, on one of the shows pulled me aside as a friend and gave me a little talking to, which was interesting. He said, look, Cenk, there are two audiences, right? He said, there's the audience that you're trying to appeal to, that's the viewers, and there's the audience that is management, okay? And management is kind of like the club. And they want to make sure that you're cool and that, you know, basically you can play ball to be in the club. And I thought, hey, listen, the guy's trying to look out for me. I appreciate it. Is that really true? Who knows, right? Hey, it's something to note, no question about it, right? But we'll see how it develops. Okay. Then I started getting notes every once in a while, and these notes were no big deal, perfectly fine. You know, they would tell you, uh, don't use your arms so much. Look at that, I'm just using the arms, right? <laughs> okay. Why? Who knows? Uh, act more like a senator. Why? Why would I act like a senator? Senators are incredibly boring. Why would I do that? But okay, I'm trying, you know, hey, it's a different format, right? On the online, I get to do as my show, I do whatever I like, we have a great audience, etc. but it's a different format, and they're in that uh, respect my bosses, so I listen to them, right? And then we get a number of enormous news events, and for those of you uh, who don't know, those big news events wind up helping CNN. So when Egypt Revolution happens, everybody turns to CNN, uh, Libya, Japan, uh, Osama bin Laden getting shot and killed, uh, all those are what they call CNN stories, right? And so, now the show is not named. Uh, we have all these four storms that we gotta get beyond. Uh, and then I'm doing this and this, okay, and I got the tie. It's, but you know, so we had some up and down numbers in February and March, for example, right? Uh, and then I started doing it more my style. <laughs> and then the numbers went up. You're about to see that in a second. Okay, and I just love this comment on YouTube. I'm sorry, I forgot who said it. But they said, looking at Jenk on the Young Turks is like watching a tiger in the wild, right? Seeing him on uh, TV is like watching that same tiger in a zoo. <laughs> and I love you for saying that. It's a little true, especially when I was actually trying to listen to their advice. Now, I stopped listening to their advice in April. Why? Well, this is the TV moment or movie moment. I got pulled in. And they told me, hey, listen, uh, we were just, or it was actually one specific person, the head of MSNBC. He said, I was just in Washington, and people in Washington tell me that they're concerned about your tone. I was like, whoa, what? You know, despite all the things that I've said about the mainstream media, I still viewed that as kind of like theoretical. Like a real person, are they really going to say that? I was like, 
And I, I'm naively thinking, what does he mean? Did he talk to his friend Bob in Washington? <laughs> Why would you say people in Washington if you meant, oh, yeah, I was talking to my buddy down at the shop about you. It just happened to be that he was a person in Washington. You wouldn't frame it that way, right? But I'm still thinking that. And then he gives me the second part of the speech. Hey, listen, Jenk, outsiders are cool. And they wear, I think he might have said something like, they wear leather jackets, they ride bikes. I think I'm an outsider, I don't ride a bike. But <laughs> I have a terrible leather jacket. Anyway, he said, I'd love to be an outsider, outsiders are cool. But we're not. We're insiders. We are the establishment. And I just kind of sat back. I was like, wow, this is it. This is the speech. So he, he said, look, you got to tone it down. And then he had me talk to one of their top contributors who explained, hey, listen, just take it easy. You know, you're a little tough on the guests and, you know, tone issues and let's have more Republicans on, which was an interesting thing. I, by, by the way, I have no problems with that because I'm not going to have a Republican on and play patty cakes with them. Whenever I had Republicans on, I challenged them and I enjoyed that. So no problems with that. So uh, I get that speech and uh, when I walked out of the office, I didn't say anything to him uh, when I heard it. And when I walked out of the office, I thought, oh, that's it. Now it's on. Okay, I will not be doing that. I will be doing the opposite. So then I started uh, letting that tiger run a little bit, right? And we did it more my style. Whether it was stylistically, more, uh, some of the segments were more unscripted. At the end, they were totally unscripted, right? Which I enjoy, like we're doing right now. Um, because you get to tell a story that way. I'm going to come back to that point in a second. But substantively, you know, it was always uh, challenging the government and challenging those that are in power. And obviously, that was the issue, right? And I continue to do that uh, going forward as well. And so what happened? Well, my ratings improved dramatically. April was good. May was great. Let me show you the May numbers. Uh, these are all from internal MSNBC emails, okay? Uh, adults 25 to 54, I got 164,000. That was a 19 share, delivered the strongest adults 25 and total viewer audiences since the launch of the show. Okay. Now, you got to understand the demo talk here on television, right? Adults 25 to 54 is what they call the money demo. That's uh, where they want, uh, that's what the advertisers judge you on. That's where you got to do well. So, April, check. May, even better. Great. Uh, well, how about the whole quarter? Because that gives you a better sense of it. So if you say, oh, well, he did well this week or he didn't do well that week, yeah, that's not really much of an indication. But a whole quarter, three months, April, May, and June. Well, fantastic. Look at those numbers. Adults 25 to 54, 154,000 overall, 18 share. Now, that includes uh, April, and we picked up in May and June. Uh, but even then, overall, ranked number two in total viewers uh, overall in the quarter, beat CNN. And MSNBC Live at 6, that's me, up from last year and last quarter. So why is it important that it's up from last year? Well, they were incredibly satisfied with Ed Schultz, as they should have been. He did a great job, and he brought up the numbers. I did better than last year's numbers, okay? So if you beat the guy that they said, hey, was the guy who got the position before you, they should be very happy with that. And it's not to say that I beat Ed, it's just we improved on the numbers, so that's fantastic, right? And if you beat the hell out of CNN, that's fantastic. In June, it's even better. Okay, now look at this. Uh, this was the week right before they told me the decision, okay? Um, 174,000 uh, in the demo, 19 share. Beat CNN by 51,000 in the demo. <laughs> now that's when they're saying, yeah, we're not that interested. 
how can you not be interested if you care if you only care about the numbers? That doesn't make any sense, right? If you think that's bad, you see uh, what we had up on that earlier graphic? I beat Fox in adults 18 to 34. Those are, uh, that's a younger audience, obviously. I don't know how many MSNBC shows beat Fox. In fact, when I went on MSNBC, I did an article with Alternet, and I said that I would beat Fox in the ratings and ma make them fear me. And I remember some conservative websites, oh, yeah, well, you, who's gonna, you can't beat Fox in the ratings. Fox is way ahead. That's why, you know, you see the number two numbers. That means you beat CNN and you beat everybody else, right? Well, I caught him in a demo. Right after I caught him in a demo and was number one there, they called me and said, no thanks. Okay, now, obviously I was puzzled by that, right? So, and, but I do know that the speech I got it three months ago, so I asked. I said, hey, listen, did I not do everything you asked me to? And he said, yes, you did. I said, did I not get good ratings? He said, you did. I said, so what's up? Uh, we think that there's a better role for you, and it's not in 6 o'clock. <laughs> okay, I'm like, great. When do I start at 7 o'clock? <laughs> and that is not how it went down. So they offered me a, a smaller role, contributor, et cetera, et cetera. And again, to, you know, I, maybe to their credit, they offered me a lot of money. So why did I turn it down? Look, when they gave me the speech, I thought, look, they're trying to rail, you know, they're trying to bring me in, and and, but they're not. I said maybe they are. Maybe they're going to act on it. But I don't care. I'm not going to do that. There's no way that I am going to control the content of the show and tone it down so that people in Washington are happy. Not going to do it. I promised you guys. You remember before I went into MSNBC, I promised the Young Turks audience that I would never do that, right? So, I, you know, but at the time you think, are they really going to make a decision based on that? I don't know. We'll find out. Well, when your ratings are good and they say you did everything you were supposed to do and then you don't get the show, it leads me to believe that that might have been the reason. So, I didn't want to work at a place that, you know, wouldn't let me do my kind of show, that wasn't interested in my kind of show, didn't want to challenge power. In fact, isn't that what I've been railing against the whole time on the Young Turks? And look, part of the reason that I made the decision, and look, come on, keep it real, there's a lot of factors, right? You get all that money thrown at you. And let me tell you something else that's really important. It's the perks. It's funny because I said the same thing before I went in. God, they give you car rides to the airport, they give you fancy hotels. You know that it, when you fly business class, not only do you get warm chocolate chip cookies, but your bags come out first. And you're like, oh, suckers, all right, everybody wait, I'm going first, right? It's great to have your bags come out first. You get used to it, right? And that's how they suck you in. As a general principle, I don't mean MSNBC in particular. And so I thought and I thought and I said, look, the deciding factor for me was I had to tell you this story because I'm holding on to the story that you know I've been talking about the whole time on the Young Turks about how uh, the problem with the mainstream media is they're desperate to get access they don't challenge the government they don't challenge power and now you see that that is in fact true when they give you the speech you're not sure that it's true when they act upon the speech then you're sure it's true then I gotta tell you that. If I take the money and I get a reduced role and I just, you know, do whatever I do with it, and maybe I even rise up in the ranks again, what's the point, man? The point of this show was truth telling. That's what we're supposed to do. And we're supposed to challenge the government. That's the role of the media. So I stuck to that and uh and I hope I made the right decision. And that is exactly what we'll do on the Young Turks going forward. And you could still tell them. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors. I'm coming. More than ever, I'm coming.
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks in advance to all the uh, people who called in to leave the voicemails I'm just about to play. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So as promised, this is a part two commentary on kind of veganism and empathy and those uh, sorts of topics. So I'm going to play a bunch of uh, voicemails and comment as we go. Hi, Jay. Um, my name's Jose from Miami, and I would like to respectfully disagree with the gentleman who called in to the last show and claimed during his explanation of why he didn't like Citizen Radio that there was, of course, an ethical way of eating meat. Not only do I not think this is a logical assumption valid of building an argument upon, but I think it's wrong. I don't care uh, that if the cows that you're raising are on a 100% ecologically friendly farm, and let's be honest, in most of the cases, this is not what it is. It's, a lot of farms are not going to be 100% ecologically friendly. At the end of the day, you're still killing a sentient being that had feelings. I know some might say that animals aren't as aware as humans and that it's not the same thing. But the same thing goes for dogs, infants, the mentally handicapped. And I don't think you would kill one of these things, let alone eat its corpse. In my opinion, whether you're putting a cow, cows have the ability to cry, by the way, or a pig, pigs have the intelligence of a two-year-old, uh, out of its misery or ending a long, happy life, it can't be considered ethical to kill it. Even if you wait for that animal to drop dead, you're wasting valuable food and water resources that are not only needed in starving nations, but by people in this country. Someone's going to go hungry tonight. And rather than give the grains and clean water that they need to them, you're giving it to livestock that you can breed for the purpose of solely eating its corpse. Solely for the purpose of eating its corpse, rather. Now, some might think that I'm trying to be inflammatory with the whole comparison to the babies and whatnot, but to me the concept of eating meat itself is inflammatory. And the fact that people try and justify this as A-OK is worse. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be vegan or vegetarian. All I'm saying is that if you do so, at least have the humility of admitting it's not the best thing in the world. In any case, I look forward to your next podcast, and thank you for letting me share my opinion. Bye. So first of all, just to explain real quick, as I'm playing these voicemails, I'm playing them not so much to have the argument between eating meat and, and not, but to kind of examine the arguments that are being made. So to just examine this argument, uh, as he mentioned, very inflammatory, obviously. Uh, I think it did a, a good job of exemplifying one of my points, which is his incredibly high sense of empathy as evidenced by him, you know, making the comparison between animals and infant humans and the mentally handicapped and whatnot. You know, I wasn't personally offended by that because I'm just not easily offended, but I know that people have really, really strong feelings regarding the ethical differences between humans and non-humans, and so I'm sure many people were offended by that, and, and basically my di dissection of this argument is that when you start off by putting people on such a defensive footing, you're really probably not going to make much headway. You know, at the end, he kind of turned it around by saying, look, like all I'm really asking is that you be a little bit more humble in your choices and, and not, not be so steadfastly assured that you are right, that eating meat is the right thing to do. And so if you keep doing it and you can admit that it's probably not the best, then that's okay. So I don't know, I, like, I'd probably start with that argument 
and then work your way up to uh, animals are like babies. Next. Hi, this is Bobby Kaler from uh, Mesa, Arizona. I listen to the best of the left. I just wanted to address this to Carl in New Jersey. He said it's never ethical to eat a sentient being. It is unethical to eat any living thing. And how do you know that plants aren't sentient? Just because we don't have any way to measure their beingness doesn't mean that they don't have feelings or can't think or aren't aware of themselves. That's kind of a ridiculous statement that saying eating anything uh, sentient is unethical. It's judgment. It's a choice to eat. If you're a human being, that means you have to destroy molecules to exist. Whether they're plant molecules or meat molecules, they're still being destroyed. Or rather, we're extracting the energy from them to sustain ourselves as a human being. So stop judging others. Your point of view is one of a perceived superiority when in fact it is ego-driven and unworthy of an intelligent being on the road to evolution. Everything has a life and a death. This universe will die someday. The only thing that will exist is energy, which may again, sometime, decide to become self-aware and then manifest into a reality that sentient beings might perceive with their antiquated, slow, cumbersome bodies and brains. Thanks. Bye. Come on, dude. That is so sad. I mean, you're obviously an intelligent guy, and I have to believe that now with a bit of retrospect, you're embarrassed for those comments. I mean, you can make the moral judgment that animals are beings not worthy of any consideration whatsoever, and they're simply here to die for our pleasure, and that's fine. But to make such flippant, condescending remarks to basically condemn anyone who would believe otherwise and whose personal moral compass would say that sentient beings are worthy of some respect are just as silly as anyone who would make up complete non-science out of whole cloth to suggest that plants uh, also have some sort of nervous system to make them sentient. Uh, you know, it was simply the most condescending comment I've heard on this or any topic ever. It was pathetic, and you should be ashamed. Hey, Jay, it's Chuck in Salt Lake City. I'd really hate to have, like, a back and forth or anything, and, of course, you can not play my call so we don't have a back and forth, but I had to respond. Uh, the reason I think there is an ethical way to eat meat is because uh, we are carnivores. Uh, all you got to do is look at our dental pattern. Uh, we don't have teeth like a cow. We have teeth like an omnivore. Uh, we evolved that way. And uh, in, 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 for someone to say that uh, all animals are sentient beings and we never should eat them is to say that our evolution is also just as ethically inappropriate and therefore we never would have became homo sapiens i just kind of think like these people are kind of putting their taking their brain out of gear when they try to uh, say that we are a, a herbivore species anyway keep up the great work thanks so much to unpack out of this one. First of all, uh, I've never heard a vegan make the argument that uh, we've evolved to be herbivores. So that's a straw man argument, not appreciated. Secondly, as a non-vegan, I'm going to go ahead and speak on their behalf anyways and say, you know who vegans never give shit to for eating meat? Uh, our ancestors who lived millions or thousands or even hundreds of years ago 
the vast majority of whom were always on the precipice of not surviving for lack of food. I have never heard a vegan make the claim that it is unethical for like tribal people to go out and catch an animal and kill it to feed their families, even up into the present day. So, you know, tribal peoples now whose, you know, their whole family, the most valued possession they have is the goat that they get, uh, you know, milk and cheese from and then will eventually kill and eat. Uh, I've never heard an, a vegan make the argument that that is uh, an unethical way for that tribe to live. So Chuck in Salt Lake City, if you happen to live in a tribe and have to sustain yourself off of, you know, goat's milk, then we can start to have that conversation. Now let's talk evolution, one of my favorite topics of all time. So first of all, yes, we clearly evolved to be omnivores. It is even one of the things that helped us to thrive as we have because we were able to take nutrients from you know a wide variety of sources. But we've evolved to do a lot of other things as well. For instance, uh, we evolved to enjoy the taste of sugar because a thousand years ago, sugar was pretty scarce. We needed it, it needed to taste good, and we were attracted to it because it gave us a burst of energy that we could use to run away from a lion or something. And, uh, and now we use way too much of it and we have an obesity problem. You know, we've also evolved to be very susceptible to believe in religion. You know, religion creates a you know shared belief system. It creates community and humans on their own are really, really frail, frail creatures that don't do a good job of kind of uh, making it on their own. We've only thrived because, uh, of, you know, of our communal nature and religion has for thousands of years been the glue that held people together. And so those who were religious had a community to stick with and were able to thrive. Those who were not religious didn't necessarily have that community and survival of the fittest, bada bing, here we go, a world full of religious people. Now, if all the religions in the world basically said, hey, like there's a God and he thinks that you should treat everyone really nicely and everyone believed in that and it created peace in the world, well, that'd be pretty great. But once it starts to get out of control, religion becomes this reason to go to war when it's usually the opposite of what the religions were preaching to begin with. So yes, we've evolved to do a lot of things that are beneficial in small doses that become catastrophic when they're allowed to get out of control. And that's basically where we're at with meat consumption. Next. Hey Jay, this is uh, Patrick, the uh, vegan MD from near Dallas. Just a comment on it, uh, I think most vegans feel about meat eating the way most liberals feel about child sweatshop labor. We know it's a, it's a big problem. It's one that we have little direct impact on. All you can do is not participate and try to make people aware. But you don't argue for more humane child sweatshop labor. You don't try to care that the eight-year-old gets dental or $2 a week instead of $1 a week or 12-hour days instead of 16-hour days. If child sweatshop labor is just immoral. And hey, guess what? I know it's been going on forever. In some societies, it's well accepted, just like meat eating. And these are the common arguments that most people use. So you really just can't make it uh, appealing. Um, and if he thinks that this person had come up with a novel uh, idea that a vegan had not heard about ethical meat eating, he's wrong, because even casual vegans have heard them all. Anyway, just a couple of cents. 
So this is my favorite one of the bunch, and it's why I left it for the end, because, uh, first of all, he doesn't make a direct comparison between the lives of humans and other animals, which is something that can make people, you know, really bristle, uh, and so I think that was just a good tactic. And then secondly, uh, personally, I'm just a big fan of analogies, and I liked his analogy and wanted to build on that to show how morality can actually change as circumstances change. So he, he you know, did a great job with, you know, you don't just try to make child sweatshop labor a little bit better, uh, you try to end it. And so I want to make the comparison to, to go back to, you know, think about child labor in general that hasn't always been thought of as an immoral thing. Our, our society has developed to the point to think that children shouldn't be made to work. But if you just go back a hundred years and we live in a mostly agrarian society where kids grow up on the farm and are fully expected to help out from a very young age, that's 100% the norm in, in that situation. And so, you know, to, to compare, you know, I, th I think the comparison is kind of obvious, but it goes back to the tribal family with a goat and eating that meat and you know evolving over thousands of years eating meat compared with factory farms of today being very analogous to child sweatshop labor so it's uh, you know could be moral to eat the the goat that your family owns it may be moral to make your kid work on the farm to help support the family but when you you know move forward and society progresses then all of a sudden it's not so moral to make your kids work because we've moved beyond that and in the same light you can at least understand why it is thought by many to not be moral to eat meat in the way that we do anymore because society should have moved beyond it so those are my thoughts on that. If you'd like to add your own comments, the number to dial again is 206-202-3410. And I promise you, if you keep your comments civil, your message will be heard much more openly by uh, whoever you're trying to convince. Now, I just want to thank a couple of members, as I always do. Wade I signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on March 8th, and Alexander L signed up for a socialist yearly membership back on July 9th. So huge thanks to Wade and Alexander and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the individual clips from the show on your social networks, including the commentary of mine that I just played that will also be on YouTube. To stay connected to the show between episodes, you can join up with us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as donating your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us. Details for that are on the website. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside, the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor